Good afternoon, live from Sinai Temple. It's a special edition of Rabbi on the Sidelines with Coach Matt Doherty, former head coach of University of North Carolina, SMU, and the University of Notre Dame, and national champion of University of North Carolina in 1982. Most importantly right now, the author of the newly released book. If you haven't gotten your copy, please do so. Rebound by Matt Doherty from Pain to Passion and the foreword written by none other than Michael Jordan. Coach, it is so good to have you here. How are you today? Oh, man, it's cool to be on with you, uh, Rabbi. I was trying to figure out and I asked you, what should I call you instead of Erez? I just like Rabbi. I don't uh, Irish Catholic guy. I didn't talk to too many rabbis growing up. So you're the first. <laughs> Nice, nice, nice. Well, I haven't talked, I haven't spoken to too many coaches of the University of North Carolina, so you are the first as well. I was actually at the uh, NIT when you were at the, I was a senior in high school when you were coaching Notre Dame and uh, it was against Wake Forest at Madison Square Garden. Yes. yes. Where'd you go to high school? Oh, high school in upstate New York and Syracuse. I also saw you at the Carrier Dome, but I was visiting Columbia University where my, where I went for college and NIT oh, was in town and so are you. So it was uh, great. Columbia's a great school. Yeah, Columbia's yes. a great school. I used to live on 96 and Broadway after college. Oh, so with the entire yeah. Jewish community, you were there. I would yeah. ask you what synagogue you attended. <laughs> my, my mother, who is Mary Cleary Darty, um, as soon as I moved to 96 and Broadway, she knew exactly what parish I belonged to because she grew up in the Bronx. And she's like, so what time's mass at Holy Name? And I'm like, Oh my gosh, I didn't even know the parish at that point. I was not, you know, being a good goyim. <laughs> so talk about the Catholic aspect for a moment. And let's go to Notre Dame first, a little out of order. Um, it was in the book that, first of all, a wonderful book. Again, if you haven't gotten your copy, please do. If you're a basketball fan, if you're not, if you want to be a leader, if you have been a leader, this is the book to read for leadership today. Um Notre Dame, you get the job there, and your mom says, if you can't be a Catholic priest, the second best thing to do is to be the head coach of the University of Notre Dame. Faith and sports, that's the premise of this podcast, two words that don't often intersect. What was it like at Notre Dame, the priest on the bench? How is faith and sports happen? How does, what does that look like there? Wow, there's a lot to unpack. How much time do we have, Rabbi? Yeah, um, that's, that's what my congregants say for the sermon, too. Yeah, the... the um, I remember getting there and, and, you know, watching Notre Dame basketball growing up, there was always a priest on the bench. And I remember when I call him the head priest, he comes to me and says, okay, let's talk about the schedule this year and the logistics of a priest being on the bench. And I said, father, you know, I mean, I'm intimidated, right? I'm, I'm Irish Catholic. I grew up with priests and the respect and, you know, the, the guilt as a, you know, I think that, the, the Jewish community and the Catholic community have one thing in common, guilt, right? We both had to deal with heavy doses of guilt. So the priest is talking to me and saying, yeah, you know, they, they, they come to the games. They're going to travel. We'll have mass before the uh, pregame meal. Uh, they're in the locker room. I said, Father, I said, listen, I don't know how I'm going to act on the bench or in the locker room. I've never been a coach before. And I said, what if I, you know, curse or yell? He's like, no problem. I'm like, well, okay, cool. So we're <laughs> we're playing Indiana at Indiana, and we are down like 18 to 2 to start the game. Bobby Knight is coaching. We're in assembly hall. 
-hmm. We're getting embarrassed. I call timeout. Team runs over, and I am lighting into these guys. Some words I can't say here on, on this podcast. And then I look up, and, and here's the priest with his head in the huddle like he's one of the players. And I said, I'm sorry, Father. And he, you know what he does? He goes like this. Sign of the cross right in the huddle. And I loved having the priests on the bench. We gave, he gave medals before each game. Right, I, read that. I have them collected. I, I have them. I have them here. I'm going to show you. Nice, nice. Coach Matt Doherty from the University of North Carolina, and these are the medals from the University of Notre Dame. Every game he would do this? Every game. Every game. Wow. Those are the medals from every game except one, okay? Uh-huh. And, and, the, <laughs> and the, the, the medal – the medal that's not there was the one I wore. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, and I, I think I lost it. Um, anyway, so so the first game, we're playing Ohio State at Ohio State. We had just lost to an exhibition game to yeah, Marathon Oil. Yep. They had beaten Marathon Oil by like 25 points. We lost by about 25. So I got mad at the team. You know, we were, we were, you know, I made them run and it was a hard week of practice. They didn't like me very much. So we're a pregame, we're a pregame meal. And at first I was unsure how our players, especially our non-Catholic players would, would take to mm -hmm. men. I was afraid. I, I, every coach thinks about recruiting, right? So I'm thinking, how is this going to impact recruiting? It was one of the best bonding experiences we had as a team. I'm getting goosebumps. To bring people together, you know, we all have our higher power. You know, mine is God and, and you know, but if, you know, but just having everybody together in that moment in non-basketball worshiping mm -hmm. our higher power was very, very powerful. And um, it was just 15 minutes, you know, and it was quick. So the priest is <laughs> giving out the medals. And there's always a story behind the medal, right? It's different saints. So he said, here's the medal of St. Jude, the, the, the patron saint of lost causes. Mm -hmm. We're getting ready to play Ohio State. They're ranked fifth in the country. I'm like, <laughs> Um, as father, as as the priest is starting to talk about the patron saint of lost causes, and goes on the story, I'm like in the back, going like, "No, no, like I don't want our guys. One. We're gonna get blown out." <laughs> so, um, you probably sorry you asked me this question. No, this is wonderful. So the bus, I, I'm from the Roy Williams School of running a program, and when the players are on the bus, we roll. And, and you don't be late, you know, like early's on time, on time is late. So the players are on the bus. We count the players, move on out. We're, we're staying about two miles from uh, the Schottenstein Center, I think it's called, at Ohio State. And we're caught in traffic. 
and uh, on this bridge. <laughs> and someone says, hey, is that is that our priest? And our priest is walking over the bridge in, a, in his black garment plus an overcoat carrying his suitcase because we left him at the hotel. He didn't get out of us in time. <laughs> now, we went out and won the game and um, had a big celebration. But I-, I loved having the priests on the bench. I think, to me, we prayed. When I played at North Carolina, when I coached at Kansas, and when I coached, we prayed before and after every game. Love it. Love it. You know, growing up in the Big East, Syracuse guy, actually Coach Beheim is going to be on the show next Thursday. Um, there was my, my father's also a rabbi. He was a rabbi in Syracuse for 40 years, and we were thankfully close with the team. And before they would go to the Big East tournament each year, it was called the annual hardwood dinner, the, the boosters. Uh, many times my dad had the honor of doing that prayer. And I remember him thinking, what should we say? And he would always say these three words. And in fact, every time we finish one of the books of the Bible, we stand up in the synagogue and we say it's in Hebrew, chazak, chazak, vanit chazak. And in English, it means be strong, be strong. And together we will be strengthened. That was always the prayer that my dad gave uh, the Syracuse Orange before they went to, went, went to the, went to the tournament um, in the garden. And, uh, you know, I might have seen Beheim use a couple of those Hebrew words um, uh, a couple times in that huddle as well. So, uh, he, he, you know, Coach Beheim, you know, I remember, I remember when I was a player. Coach Beheim, as you know, had been coaching forever. Forever. And I played against Coach Beheim's team when I was at North Carolina. And I remember on the, you know, on the court, and he, he said a couple things. I was going against Leo Routens. Yeah. And, uh, he said a couple of things. I played for Dean Smith, who never cursed ever, mm-hmm. ever. I never heard him curse one time. And nobody I know has ever heard him curse. And then I'm going down back on defense, and I hear this language coming from the coach of Syracuse. I'm like, whoa, that's that's different. That's different. But that's coach New York language. is a good man. Yes. Amazing coach. And um, I, I've always enjoyed – uh, my time around him uh, as a as a as a coach and as an announcer. He's he's he is a smart man, and and the job he's done there has been unbelievable. And I actually can tell you, as a brother of a special needs young man, the work that he did in that community off the court is second to none. And the the respect that I have for him doing that, and personally, is just a, an amazing thing. So I want to go. Yeah, go he, doesn't, he doesn't advertise it, right? I no, mean, he, he does not. He does yeah. not. And I wish everybody could see what he does off that court. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So I want to go to the big news in the University of North Carolina these last couple of weeks with Hubert Davis being named uh, head coach, um, not just in waiting, but head coach. And really, the last major, major change was when Roy Williams took over, and that was after you were at North Carolina, and that's what this book is about. Again, rebound from pain to passion. What advice do you have to coach Davis now knowing what experience you went through back then to, if you wish, I'll use the word mistakes, not make the mistakes that you admit in this book that you made. back. I made made a bunch of them, uh, Rabbi. I think that um, he has two huge advantages that I didn't have. Mm -hmm. 
He's been on that bench for nine years Mm -hmm. as an assistant coach. I, I was not. My last time I was sat in that seat when I played in 1984, you know, so being an assistant coach um, was huge for nine years. The second thing, so the transition's not difficult. You don't have to move. I mean, right. fundamental things. You don't have to move his family. Right. Um, you know, he's not going to say no to the opportunity. He's not leaving a program like Notre Dame. He's just sliding over a chair. Uh, and then secondly, he's doing it in April. I got my job July 11th. Oh, wow. People don't really understand and comprehend. Wow. Recruiting, exactly. Recruiting. And I was not going to leave my staff at Notre Dame. And mm-hmm. and and I told the athletic director that I, you know, hey, listen, if I can't bring my staff, that's okay, but I'm going to stay at Notre Dame. Mm-hmm. But – in turn, and I see it now, how important it is for the Carolina faithful that there is representation on the bench from former players. Mm-hmm. So I realize now more than ever, and I realized it, you know, when I got let go, but the challenge that that was, I, I looking back now, knowing what I know, I probably should have stayed at Notre Dame. Interesting. Because I, I couldn't win by bringing my staff with me. And I put them in harm's way. Hmm. And so so you have to have massive success to overcome that or massive support internally. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I didn't have either. My it's first- interesting that you said that you put people in harm's way. i bring it to the faith thing in a moment, but actually next week in our uh, – portion that we'll read here in the synagogue it says don't put a stumbling block before the blind and it's interesting you said right michael jordan called you roy williams called you from kansas you had to do it right but now all of a sudden you say wait but i took these other people brought them with and put them in harm's way i find that a really fascinating moment yeah it 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 it, you know now maybe and and again i go back to it's july 11th so things are going around my head so fast, my head spinning. Two of the wives on the staff were pregnant. Wow. Uh, it's in the middle of the recruiting period. Um, I didn't want to leave my staff in the cold. And I didn't have time. And, and, and this is where the leadership of the, you know, university could have helped. Hey, listen, we think it'd be tough if you brought your staff with you. Here's an option. Bring them with you. We'll integrate them into the organization, but at a reduced role, but same pay. Mm-hmm. Now that could have worked. Mm-hmm. That might have been a really good option, but it wasn't presented. Interesting. And I didn't present it. Right. Because I didn't think of it as an option. I thought it was net some game, right? Right. Right. So, so, uh, but what, what advice, Hubert's a smart guy. He's also 50 years old. I was 37. Wow. I, I was 38. Yes. Mm-hmm. So I, I was, I mean, I think 50, you know, if I took it, you know, I remember somebody asked me, you know, if a reporter, if, if I would have been better off had I been five years at Notre Dame before I became the head coach. I'm like, yeah, 
course. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, they spun it in a negative way, but yeah. I mean, aren't you better as a rabbi now than you were five years ago? I hope so. I hope so too. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. If I, you know, so, Hey, if I would have stayed at Notre Dame, maybe I'd be the head coach right now. Wow. Let's go go all the way back to 1982. I'm going to show a little clip here of the moment uh, you won that championship. Right before you missed the one and one here, which led to. Uh, Thanks for bringing that up, Rabbi. You don't need I, to I didn't, that up. I didn't show it. I didn't show it. Bring that up. Michael Jordan hits that shot, and then we'll just see the next play, which is so infamous in college basketball history. That's yeah. one of the first plays that I ever saw in college basketball. Take us back to winning that championship in Louisiana Superdome and that moment that will live forever. Well, it, it's one of the greatest finals of all time. Um, to be a part of that, Rabbi, growing up dreaming, you know, as a kid, you have a ball and a dream. And the dream about being in those moments and then it actually occur. Mm-hmm. And, and yet, you know, it's still, it's still mentioned as you just did there because of the significance of it for several reasons. One, it was coach Smith's first championship Two, yeah. first time CBS had it three, the first time in a domed arena Four, mm-hmm. it was the coming out party for a guy named Michael Jordan. Exactly. Um, and, you know, you had the talent on that court. Worthy, Perkins, Jordan, Sleepy Floyd, Patrick Ewing. Yeah. Yep. Two iconic coaches mm-hmm. that unfortunately have both passed. So, yeah, it was a huge moment to be a part of that. And I did miss a foul shot with a minute 30 to go. That really shook me up. I got fouled. It was – it was – it would, boy, if it was a would have been wouldn't have been called, they would have gone down for a layup. I'm thinking I, I I'm thinking as I run back on defense after I missed a foul shot that I lost the national championship for Dean Smith. That's well, what when I, I when I saw that I was thinking I'm a Syracuse guy again. 1987, Derek Coleman misses the end of the one and one. Go back, Steve Alford or Keith Smart in where we grew up. So it's called the shot, right? right. And it's interesting right. here. I brought that up because from pain to passion, right? It could have gone from pain and it actually went the other way, which is right. so important in the game of basketball. Well, I think I think of Freddie Brown in that case. You know, he threw the ball away. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think of Bill Buckner, the ball mm-hmm. went through his legs with the Red Sox. Exactly, exactly. Oh, so, and and it's it's the thing in sports you put yourself. I, t- I tell kids, oh, you want exposure? Be careful because you just might get exposed. Exactly. Exactly. It's not all good, but it's a test. So that's that moment in 1982 that will live forever, not just you, but let's go talk about dreams because in the book, you really talk about Prospect Park and really spending hours and months there and summers there. Not, I think not wanting to get a summer job because you need to spend all that time at the park looking up to the guys, but not just looking up but saying, I can do this. I'm on that court. 
how do dreams turn into reality? You mentioned often that you might have had not as much, if you wish, natural talent, but you worked so hard that you could get on the court with those people. How do dreams lead to reality? Well, um, you know, I, I just, I think there's so many things that come together, right? I mean, one, internally, you know, it has to be, the person has to have the drive. I mean, you know, there are people that grew up in small towns that had no exposure to pro teams or, you know, look at Jerry West from Cabin Creek or, you know, you think of Larry Bird from French Lick, Indiana. And yet these guys could dream and, and, and work on their games. You know, I was blessed. I had, Mom and a dad, a great family, blue-collar town on Long Island. And my dad exposed me to baseball and basketball and the different sports. And we had the the Knicks and the Nets and the Yankees and the Mets and the Giants and the Jets, the Rangers and the Islanders. And, you know, I remember my dad signing me up for basketball camp, and he bought me my first job at Nescot Drugs. <laughs> And as he's he's handing me the jock in the car, he says, he says, now remember, when a coach corrects you, don't say I know. Yeah. Just listen. And I, I thought how 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 awesome that was when I was in fourth grade. And wow. that really came to light when my son was, you know, coming of age where I'm throwing the ball with him and I'm trying to coach him, and he's he's got all the answers. And I'm thinking, oh, geez, now I know what my dad was dealing with. My mm-hmm. dad had a lot more patience than I did. But to to then be exposed via TV or in person to games at St. John's, Hofstra, uh, Nassau Coliseum, the Knicks on TV. I never saw the Knicks playing in the garden growing up. Going to the garden, though, to see St. John's play. You know, that, like, I wanted to be in that. You know, seeing Holy Trinity play, you know, in these intense games against St. Agnes, I wanted to be in that. And then go to the park. Mm-hmm. The thing about basketball, as, as it was written in Bill Bradley's book, right. in sixth grade, his book, Life on the Run, if somebody else is working harder than you, when you two meet, that other person will have the advantage. Right mm-hmm. then, Rabbi, quit baseball. I'm like, I'm out because I can control my work ethic. I can't control my athleticism, although you tried, but I'm like, I tell kids all the time. Yeah. You're going to work all summer to try to gain a head half inch in your vertical, spend all summer working on your ball handling and your, your shooting. Exactly. Exactly. So you do it. You turn that dream into reality. You work your way up North Carolina. Lots of amazing recruiting stories. Again, the book Rebound from Pain to Passion by Coach Matt Doherty. Um, you get there. You welcome in Michael Jordan. You're in the front of Sports Illustrated. Dean Smith doesn't allow Michael Jordan to be on the cover because he's a freshman. And you work your way up the coaching ladder. Tell us a little bit about working with Coach Williams first at Kansas. Were you there in 96 when they played Syracuse in the lead eight? Man, you're killing me, Rabbi. You're talking about missing foul shots. And so, did Beheim put you up to this? Uh, I was an eighth grader there. I vividly remember. Well, that listen, day. Hey, listen, 
you're bringing up some bad memories. You're no, killing sorry. me. No, but no, you no. Were, the Roy Williams, though, piece, and like you said, you, you, you're you a student of his. Yes. How did well, you- I, I go back to Davidson. Yeah, I leave, Philip, right? I leave Wall Street because I didn't like it. I moved to Charlotte in 1989. Then I become an assistant coach. And then I go at, at Davidson for Bob McKillop, who was my high school coach right. for two years at, at Trinity. And then I'm there three years. And we go, I go to Kansas and work for Roy Williams for seven. 11 years after I left New York City and Wall Street, I'm the head coach at Notre Dame. Mm-hmm. And I tell kids all the time, your life's nothing but a series of decisions in dealing with the consequences. Yeah, I love. Can you repeat that? That's an important line. I think your life is nothing but a series of decisions and dealing with the consequences. And the better decisions you make, the better the better your life will be. So in our tradition, we say lo samchim al hanes that you shouldn't rely on miracles, which I think is a different way of saying that that you put yourself in the miraculous moments because of the decisions that you make. I love that. Uh, Yeah. No, that's pretty cool. The translation. So. So I worked for for Coach Williams for seven years, and it was just great. I mean, Allen Fieldhouse in Lawrence, Kansas, is in a, the I think the best place in college basketball. Um, no offense to the Carrier Dome, no, all good Duke, the Dean Dome, but every night you're getting sixteen thousand right on top of you. The, the 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 building's worth about ten points, I think, mm. for a home team, and. Um, I learned a lot, and we recruited great guys. We had, we had good, really good players, great players that were great guys. You know, from Jock Vaughn to Paul Pierce to mm-hmm. Scott Pollard, Ray LaFrenz, Billy Thomas, Ryan Robertson, I can go on and on. Rex Walters, you know, some guys I'm really close with to this day. And uh, my son was born there. And, you know, growing up, I'm like thinking of Kansas. It's the middle of the country. I jokingly say it's on the staple. Like if you, the old Atlas that yeah. you pull out. And Topeka was right under the staple in the middle of the country. That's where we were. <laughs> right. Under, under the staple. And, uh, but it was a great place to live. We had a great experience and um, it got me to Notre Dame. So let's go from Notre Dame. You're there one year and you get a call from Michael Jordan. Right. Uh, we have a question actually from our uh, from our social media. What did Michael Jordan say to you that helped you decide that UNC was for you? He said, if you don't take the job, Coach Smith will probably go outside the family and hire Rick Majerus. Hmm. And I'm like, that's not happening. Like <laughs> Coach, Coach Smith and Michael knew what buttons to push on me. And mm-hmm. I didn't want somebody from outside the family coaching at North Carolina. Mm-hmm. you know so so let's go three years later where like you said we talked about the mistakes and everything like that and now you're home watching coach williams win the title with the hard work that you put in and yeah. you basically write in this book and i'm saying this because you wrote it you're basically in tears you're watching the hard work that you said i needed to be there and somebody else is doing the work at the same time i'm interested in, you have this really tight bond Still with Coach Williams, how do you deal with that internally? Yeah, uh, I drink very heavily. Uh, no, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. No, I'm kidding. No, joke, joke. 
I don't drink. I don't drink at all. Um, you could cut that if you want, but that's no, okay. That was just my New York humor. Sorry. Yeah, it's um, okay. It's okay. It's very conflicting, and I I use this kind of analogy. Imagine, Rabbi, your your wife um, leaves you and marries your best friend. Mm-hmm. How would that relationship be with your best friend? Right. Basically be awkward. <laughs> it would be awkward at least. You know, and so it was awkward for a while. And through the years, it's gotten better. And I, I'd say it's good. You know, I'd mm-hmm. say it's good. Um, will it ever be where it was? Probably not, you know, for a lot of things, time and distance and, but, um, you know, I, I think he did a good job to make me feel welcome in coming back to, to campus. And that meant a lot to me, you know, he and his staff made me feel welcome because for a while, for about six years, I felt like I was the black sheep of the family. Mm-hmm. And didn't know if I was welcome. And, and and then finally, you know, I contacted him. He got me seats right behind the bench. And the fans were very gracious. Um, so it really was important. You know, I mean, that's, you know, we talk about family, right? And I was part of the family and I felt like I was nudged out. But. I, f- I feel like I'm a part of it and, and um, not everyone's going to love me in the family. It's a big family. We got like over 200 family members, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know, there's families of three that sometimes the siblings don't like each other. So that happens, but I, I feel in a good place. Hubert Davis and I text the other day, I text him. Congratulations. He said, thanks coach. No, that means a lot to me. So mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, you mentioned family, and actually, again, going back to the faith piece, if you look at the book of Genesis and the Bible, the family is flawed. But in fact, the flawed family goes out on top, right? I always say if you're going to find the perfect uh, a, a priest or a rabbi that, or whoever that has perfect faith, it's not the church or synagogue that I want to go to. I want right. to go where somebody have had real-life experience that you can have those doubts in faith and that you can, in fact, stand up and admit those as well. That's why I love the title rebound um, because, right, you, we miss more shots than you take. I mean, nobody shooting over 50% in the basketball game. That's an amazing percentage, right? In baseball, three hit batting 300 is amazing, right. and it's one-third. And the fact that you can rebound from pain to passion is just uh, – it, it's really crucial. A couple Thanks. of uh, – yeah, so you write in your chapter on communication that listening is a talent, Tell us more about that teaching and when there is a moment that maybe you wish you, or even now, how you can teach us how to listen more. Well, I I think that uh, with young people, when you're coaching, you're giving instruction. And all you want as a coach is for that player to execute that play, that drill, that defense to the best of their ability. But if they don't carry out the communication to the floor and they make a mistake in execution. I'm not talking about ability, Mm -hmm. but they don't execute the play. 
properly because they're not concentrating, they don't listen, that's a problem. Now, it's either a problem for the person communicating or the receiver. And so Coach Williams would always say, just do what I ask you to do. It's not simple, right? (laughs) So when I say to players, yeah, listening is as important as running and jumping because if, if you're not listening, you're not in tune with your team, you're going to lack chemistry, lack execution. You're not going to be successful. So you need five, five fingers working together to make a strong punch. But mm-hmm. if they're spread out and they're working on their own, your hand's a lot weaker. So <clears throat> that's, that's what I talk about in terms of communication and listening, even for I'm glad my wife's not listening, but you know, listening you have to be active, an active listener. And, and so as a leader, you need to, your body language is 50% of communication. So Absolutely. are you open? Is your body line, body open up or are you closed? You know, are you kind of looking away? Are you fidgeting with this thing? Are you, or are you really present and locked in? And then, mm-hmm. Actively, aggressively listen. So do you ask questions? You know, to one, it does two things. It shows the, 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 the person talking that you are listening and you're locked in, but it also programs your mind to stay in the moment because we all have a little ADD, right? So you could be talking and I see a car go back out in the window and I'm thinking about who's that? Mm-hmm. Now it forces me to get back on track where I say, I nod and I say, yes, Syracuse, 1996, mm-hmm. you know, and, and so then you can stay present. Uh, I think it was Woodrow Wilson said, no one ever listened themselves out of a job. Nice, nice. And actually, I think I, I love that. And listening is not just to somebody else, but actually really internal listening to yourself as well. Well, yeah, that's a whole nother conversation. Yeah. <laughs> Trusting your instincts. Right. And sometimes we don't. So I was actually going to have you on in August because of this next teaching and this last teaching, but there were too many good things that we had. To, we had I had to meet you before. And in the last chapter, you said, learn to forgive. And I thought that's a message that really we speak about in the Christian tradition, the Jewish tradition. That is our message of the high holidays. But the best part I thought was in addition to being able to forgive others, you must forgive yourself. That's got to be hard to write. And it seems like you wrote this book. And I've watched many interviews that you've done recently. You said, I couldn't have written this book in 2004, 2005. I had to take 17 years in order to figure out how to forgive myself. What did that process look like? And how can we learn from that? Yeah, I appreciate it. I think that's, oh, man, you know, there's a lot of, things in the book. And I think that's as important as, if not the most important thing. Um, you know, I'm, uh, you touched on perfection earlier and, you know, the only, in, in my world, my faith, the only person that was perfect, they hung on the cross in my, mm-hmm. in my faith. Right. Okay. Um, 
And as Jesus was hanging on the cross, he was able to forgive those that persecuted him. And I'm like, whoa, like, like if he could do that, you know, I could forgive some people that I think may have wronged me or I felt may have wronged me. And, um, but most importantly, you know, I'm hard on myself and a lot of people are hard on themselves and they beat themselves up. And so two things come to mind. One, if sometimes we're more forgiving than others, than we are ourselves. Absolutely. But by forgiving ourselves, it can bring us peace and, and grace. You know, we need to give ourselves grace because we're not perfect. And, and oh, by the way, it's, it's highly egotistical to think that you shouldn't have made a mistake. Like, who do you think you are that you're not going to make mistakes? Mm-hmm. So it's part of our lives. And so, yeah, I'm going to make a mistake. Just trying not to make the same mistake twice. Try to learn from them. But when you make a mistake, you got to learn from it and then move forward. Because, you know, if we stay looking over our shoulders, we're going to make another mistake. We're not going to be living in the present. And then the other thing is we have such negative self-talk that it really can be damaging to our mental health. Mm -hmm. By saying things like, I'm an idiot. How stupid was I? That was ridiculous. What was I thinking? That's not healthy. You know, it's healthy to say, boy, I was, I was, what a, what a jerk. That was, but boy, I learned something. That's why I love Nelson Mandela's quote. He says, I never lose. I either win or I learn. Mm, Love that. Right. Yeah. So we have a similar teaching, the forgiveness from a teacher by the name of Maimonides. And basically, you know, people think that you should ask God for forgiveness, but that's not the case. God, of course, will forgive, but you have to forgive the other person. The, the, it's called it's repentance, return. Return doesn't happen until you forgive the other person, but also forgiving yourself as well. We have Coach Howard Fisher out here in uh, California. Howard, but, uh, Howard, Coach Fish. Yeah, um, so he actually said he enjoyed your book and he uh, really appreciates the idea of a coaching scar. Maybe just yes. uh, touch on what is a coaching scar? Oh, it's good to hear from Coach Fisher. I've known him really for whew, since I started coaching, probably. Um, Bob McKillop coined that phrase, and it's when you say something in front of your team or to a player that cuts the player to the core and you realize as it's coming out of your mouth mm-hmm. or soon thereafter that you shouldn't have done it. And, and, and I had two coach. Well, I had more than two, <laughs> but two that I really remember. And I mentioned them in the book, you yeah. know, one was with Jason Capel and the other was with Sean May, but mm-hmm. I regret to this day. You know, and there'll be moments I'm in my car or going to bed and I'll think about them. And it's just, you know, I've got to forgive myself, right? You got it. And, 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 but they still cut me and disappoint me that I did that. And, and, you know, parents do it to their kids. 
Right. I was going to say it's not just on the sidelines. We do it all in our own lives. I love that metaphor though, of a coaching, of a coaching scar. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So actually when I was in rabbinical school, we had to write a metaphor for God. I was not a 96th street, but 122nd street at the Jewish theological seminary. And the musicians wrote a song and the artist drew a picture and me as a sports guy and a basketball guy, I in fact compared not a coach to God, but in terms of how we look about God and how we look about coach. And it's everything you said. Basically, when things are good, we don't necessarily give credit to God for the blessings. But when things are bad, God's out the window and coach is out the window. And uh, I always remember thinking about that in terms of sports and that intersection of faith and sports as well. Um, So to conclude for today, first of all, thank you for your amazing book. If you have not order your copy, please, please, please rebound from pain to passion. Um, When you are in the LA area, we look forward to welcoming you to our community at Sinai Temple here in Los Angeles. Um, On Thursday, we're going to have Joe Lunardi out of the bracket bunker, bracketology, next week with Coach Jim Beheim. But what is your message, in fact, to not just the young people, but to everybody outside of the basketball world who didn't know any of the stats we were talking about today? about how to live their life from pain to passion. What is the message as we uh, go forward? Well, I think if you haven't gotten knocked down, you will. Mm-hmm. And, and, and when you do, um, that you can rebound. And what I put in that book is that leadership is a learned behavior. Um, and it's the most important topic that is not formally taught, which mm-hmm. doesn't make sense to me. Okay, so that's why I got into the executive coaching business, because when I was taking these. So so anyway, it's it's a learned behavior. And I challenge everyone to try to. You're impacted by two things, the people you meet in the books you read, read, meet people, learn and grow. Wonderful. Meet people, learn and grow. That's the three things that I've done today. I've met you, Coach Doherty. I've learned, and after today, we will definitely grow. We wish you continued success both on and off the court. We look forward to being in touch. Again, Rebound from Pain to Passion by Coach Matt Doherty, only here on Rabbi on the Sidelines. <laughs>